hello and welcome to the Silver Linings Podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about trying to find the good in all the bad that happens to us. If there's one thing we really hope to accomplish by doing this, it's to be a source of light and happiness in today's world, in a time when we really need some positive reinforcement more than ever. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to our first episode with Margot Zuzo, where she recounts her unbelievable story about trying to save our close friend Jeff Brown as they hiked in the Sequoias, all while nearly losing her own life at the same time. This is our second episode, and I'm really excited for you to hear the story of our guests, Paul and April Moyle, as they share some of the challenges and trials they've faced over the last few years in trying to have children of their own. You'll see, just as I did, how incredibly strong and hopeful they've become through it all. So let's go ahead and get to the interview. Okay, welcome everybody. I am here with Paul and April Moyle, and we have an amazing story um, for them together. Um, some stuff they've been through, some unique experiences, and they've got uh, some amazing things to tell for us. But to just get things started right away, so everybody, whether they know you or don't, will kind of level set here and let you guys answer the same three questions we like to ask everybody. This will be our Reader's Digest version of um, Everybody Knows Your Story. So first question is, who are you? Second question, what do you do? And then the third is, what happened to you? Okay, we are April and Paul Moyle. And I'm a part-time dental hygienist and full-time mom. And I'm an art director, production designer for TV, film, and commercials. And this is our story about how our family started and where we're at now with our family. Um, About two and a half years ago, we had a little girl named Evelyn. She was only with us for about four days, and we got to meet her and feel of her spirit and Shortly after that, we got pregnant really fast again. Uh, we felt parenthood and we and motherhood and fatherhood, and we really wanted to keep that family going. But complications with that little guy, we named him James um, after 15 weeks, and he passed away. Uh, during his passing, April had to get uh, an emergency hysterectomy, partial hysterectomy, and so she was only left with um, the ability with her ovaries and so we were able to through a process um, do IVF. And with those embryos from IVF we ended up doing surrogacy with my sister-in-law and had Lillian who we have now. So now you've got one little daughter Lillian and she is how old? She is almost four months. Four months old, okay. Um, We just met them, Um, the little babies here, uh, both of our families are out doing funner things while we sit here and do this. Um, Unfortunately for audio reasons we needed to just keep it the noise to a minimum, but hopefully they'll be here by the time we're done. Maybe we'll even do a little guest appearance um, and get our time. them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so again, thank you guys so much for coming. That was again a very quick version of what happened. We're going to dive into all of this um, and talk about it because you guys already have been through more than almost anybody has in their life or should have to go through. And both of you, part of the reason we wanted to do this is. Um, April, you and my wife had gotten fairly close in the last, I don't know, year or so, right, and become better friends, and one thing my wife said to me was just like, April is so open about everything. I didn't even, like, when you guys first met, you were just, like, willing to share your thoughts about it, and Lindsay always admired that about you, and so that was one reason I thought it'd be cool to have you guys talk about this, because I don't think everybody has that to them. So let's just, let's start um, when you guys met, 
So you were living here in Southern California, right, when you met and started dating. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll get into the first pregnancy, maybe. Yeah, so we met through different church groups from Santa Monica um, and through Huntington Beach, just through mutual friends. We started dating uh, pretty fast. We knew that we wanted to get married, and about eight months later, we were married and starting this new adventure of our little family, you know. Cool. Anything you want to add to that, April? Your side of the story? <laughs> um, I asked him out on our first date. <laughs> you asked him out? Yeah. We went to a concert. Sometimes that's what it takes, right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> okay, so then, so you guys got married. What? Let's see, what time Time of the year, month, what, when was this? We got married in July of 2012. July of 2012. Okay, then so let's go fast forward then to the first story of Evelyn, your first pregnancy. Walk us through that. Okay, so um, with Evelyn, it was 2015. Um, I had a very normal pregnancy, super sick, but baby was healthy. Um, and I was pretty miserable the whole time throughout the pregnancy, just from the sickness. We got to 39 and a half weeks. I was already starting to um, progress in labor, and so my doctor said that she was willing to induce us at 39 and a half weeks. And, um, so I was, you're pretty excited about I was that, all for that at I was this like, point. Get her out. So um, we went in, got induced, and um, they they broke my water and they watched Evelyn's heart rate and it actually dropped and um, kind of went back and forth and they just kind of watched her for a little bit and at some point it didn't look right. They didn't know um, if her heart was still beating, so they wheeled me to the OR and it was just an emergency C-section. They got her out and. Um, she wasn't breathing very well on her own. They had to resuscitate her. Um, she ended up having something we found out later on from tests called a fetal maternal hemorrhage. Okay. And what that means is at some point during labor or right before labor, she ended up giving back most of her blood to me through the placenta. And so that's why she came out very low on blood and, and oxygen. And so she was in the NICU. They didn't know what was going on and how to stop um, everything, all the crashes. They ended up having to do a, a surgery about 12 hours after she was born, um, exploratory, because she was bleeding internally. And um, on day three, we ended up getting an MRI. She was stable enough for an MRI to see her brain activity, and we found out that she was essentially brain dead. Um, and so on day four, we ended up just stopping the life support and letting her pass away. Deciding to make that decision to go on from there. One of the hardest decisions you yeah. have to make. Okay, so that was a lot. I feel like yeah. I, I read through, and before we even get into this, I, part of the reason, for those of you who don't know, and if you want a lot more of the details, so April had started a blog, and it's called, I'm going to make sure I get this right, uh -huh. findingtendermercies.wordpress.com, yes, right? So she started this. So there is this whole story of Evelyn on there, which she went in and wrote after the fact that just captured a lot of this and, and I'll be full full disclosure here I read through it again recently and was in tears my perspective had changed now that I've become a father in the last year as well that like your perspective is just totally different so let's I want to go back and and talk with you guys through that because I'm sure at each point of that there was a lot of different emotions a lot of different feelings that you're going you're at you're questioning why you're hopeful but you don't know the outcome now it's you kind of look back maybe and you see everything in 2020 but yeah. At the time, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't that simple. So you were saying no real warning signs of this. You made it through the full nine, ten months, basically, 
and you're thinking, okay, we're getting induced even a little early. Right. 39 and a half weeks, right? So what ended up happening to us is extremely rare, and especially the severity of it, the fetal maternal hemorrhage, is extremely rare. Um, some babies have small fetal maternal hemorrhages, and they ended up being fine. Like, they don't even really know that it happened. Some have more moderate, and they have a little brain damage, um, maybe some disabilities. Um, but the severe ones, they usually don't. They don't survive. Yeah. yeah, one of one of the doctors after they figured out because they didn't know they had to test April's blood and get that back from the lab about three days later. They just said, "Yeah, this is a lightning strike on a beach. Like you don't. Jeez, really? It's the one percent of the one percent that this happens to." And when she came out, um, she was super hypoxic, which means she doesn't have oxygen in her blood. And so they did CPR. And after they did the CPR, she didn't have platelets or the storage of blood to re like heal the wound. Yeah. And so it was a roller coaster of we got her out and she was healthy. We got a stent. Well, she wasn't healthy, but the prognosis was um, looking brighter. Yeah. They said they were going to give her a transfusion. We were hopeful that that was going to perk her up and get her through the night, but she started to go downhill and we had to transfer hospitals. And April actually had to stay in a different hospital than I went. And I went with April's sister who was here um, to help us out. And it was another low. Yeah. We got to the hospital right away. They said we had to go into surgery. Um, she's bleeding, we don't know where. And just waiting to hear back was was pretty I'm sure the long it felt like yeah. days yeah. seemed like months. And I'm type separated of from him. I'm at the other hospital with my mom. Because you're recovering. I'm recovering from. So you're your C-section. own patient. Yeah. Let alone, and then you've got the yeah. baby doing all of that. Yeah. So even in the in that moment though, because you nor, you were planning for the normal pregnancy, and then complications, and then they wheel you off, and that's where you, Paul, you got separated from her, right? I remember yeah. reading that that yeah. they had to kind of push you out, like no, you can't be here. Oh. And they take you away. I mean, what's your thought process at that point before um, you even know so anything else? I could see through a little window. I was right outside the OR. Mm-hmm. They kept on calling different codes. Like first it was a code white or a code blue, then a code white, and it was pretty special. I got to hear Evelyn cry just for I don't know two or three cries and from outside. From outside. Okay. And so April was asleep for that and. And looking back on it now, is super special to just hear her voice. Um, only 12 people in the world, the doctors that were in there, the NICU doctors, the, um, the different uh, OB doctors that were in there, they got to hear her. And it, it was something special that I'll get to keep and get to share with April. But... That was the only time was, that, yeah. that you got to hear her cry, actually, it was yeah. in that OR. I, I couldn't see her through the little window. I was just focused on April, and they said she was doing great. Um, she healed super fast, and I think that's one thing to say to mothers out there that when you have a child in need or a child that you need to be by their bedside, April's recovery time skyrocketed. She was up and out of the bed 12 hours later really when usually a c-section you'd be set up for two weeks you know yeah and so she healed uh miraculously through her own will to get to evelyn's side and to be the mother that she needed to be yeah it was super special so when you you lost i mean you were knocked out when they did the surgery and everything like that so you came to how much did you know 
had, of what had gone on or how much was a total surprise or what? Everything was a total surprise. So I remember waking up, um, they were pulling out the tube that was in me um, and calling my name and trying to get me to. Paul wasn't in yet. And then they wheeled me over to like a recovery area where they pump you full of drugs to help your pain threshold. Um, and my sister and my mom came in and Paul, I think at that point, was down the NICU with Evelyn. Right? No, I was by your bedside. I don't even remember. Um, But I just remember, I was in tons of pain, so I was really focused on my pain. And I assumed my baby was okay, even though she wasn't here. They said that she was in the NICU. I just assumed they were were just kind of monitoring her to make sure things were okay. Um, Definitely didn't know how severe it was. Even our OB, she came in to check on me a few times, and she just kept saying, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. I don't know what's wrong with her. They're trying to figure it out. We'll let you know as soon as we know. Um, And she just, I think she was just as surprised as we were because it was such a healthy and normal pregnancy. Um, And it's so unlikely what happened. So you're uh, you're basically, I mean, you're figuring it out as you go. Yeah. Every every minute it's like new information. Right. What can I do about this? Yeah. And we ended up having to transfer her to different NICU because the NICU we were at they didn't have the proper test turnaround. It wasn't fast enough for them to figure out what was happening to her. So that's wow. why they moved her. So and where and you got where did you get transferred at that point? To UCLA. You went up to UCLA. Yeah. Okay. Which that's a better yeah, hospital and that's higher amazing. quality there. Yeah. Okay. It's one of the top They're ones. more set up for emergent Intense. cases. Was that a was that a tough thing though or a, t- a difficult thing to transfer yes. a baby? I mean, again, this is not, I'm not coming from any sort of medical knowledge on that, but I imagine if she's in that frail of a state, it was she even was, a bigger risk to do something like that. Right. She was super unstable, and so when the team came to transfer her, you know, they assumed, like, you just take the baby, put him in their transfer unit, hook up all their medicine and IVs and stuff, and take him away, and ended up taking, Hour I and say, a half. yeah, close to two hours for them to get her stable enough where they could move her over where where she wouldn't keep crashing on them. Just because of each of the machines that she's hooked up to, you gotta switch the machine and wait for it to regulate. Okay. Switch the machine, wait for it to normalize. Yeah. So that was, this is all on the first day yes. that they just get her transferred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said she was with you for four days. Four days. Mm-hmm. So what were the, I mean, what were those few days like in the hospital as you're mm-hmm. finding all this out? So the first day we didn't know what really was happening. The doctors didn't tell us because um, they didn't know, and then they transferred her over to UCLA. I was still at St. John's, the, the hospital that I had her at. Paul and my sister went over to, to kind of see her in as she was getting um, brought brought in there, and the doctors were checking her over. They um, saw that she was bleeding internally and had to do an immediate exploratory surgery to fix things inside of her. They told Paul, we don't think she'll make it through the surgery. She's not stable. But it's our only option at this point because she's bleeding out. And so um, I'm at the other hospital, no idea, like, what's going on. Paul has no idea. They're waiting. I think it, how long was the surgery? Um, I think we waited two hours, three hours. And so just sitting downstairs watching the little um, operation board, waiting for your number Name to become the- green or uh-huh. number to become yellow. You're admitted or you're out. And so, yeah, we were waiting just to see if little Evelyn would make it through the surgery because they had to cut her open and see what was what was the problem. And once the doctor came down, um, they said that through CPR that her liver had ruptured. And so they put a little mesh on that, uh, 
to see if it would continue to heal and stop bleeding. They also had to do an ostomy with her little bowel. And so it started to become necrotic and started to die. And so they had to get that bad part of the organ out and pull the other to the surface. And so when she came back to us, she was, she was still alive. Mm -hmm. She was, the prognosis was still pretty poor. Really? We didn't know if she would make it through the injuries of, of that surgery. Yeah. So that night is when I got finally transferred over to UCLA was after the surgery that night, day two. And I just remember, um, at that point, Evelyn was in a medically induced coma. They wanted mm-hmm. to keep her on high morphine so she wouldn't feel any pain from her surgery. And the doctors took us in. There were like 10 of us in this tiny, hot, hot room. I just remember it being super hot. And they sat us down, and the doctor said, Evelyn right now is living minute to minute. We don't know if she's going to make it another day, another hour. But as of right now, she's a fighter. She made it through this really hard surgery and we're willing to fight with her and that's what they did just they fought with her for four days um and so basically day three um day two and day three they were kind of just waiting for her to become stable enough to do an mri um to wheel her downstairs to radiology for that to see her brain activity because they did realize she was having um seizures in her brain um, and so they wanted to know kind of what the brain activity was. I think they they had a pretty good indication that it was a poor prognosis. They just yeah. couldn't tell us until they had the test results to yeah. let us know. Yeah, the doctors there, we had two that um, were on call that were with us throughout the stretch. They just started, and one was awesome at explaining the prognosis and the logistics and... Um, how she was doing medically and then the other one was a fighter and she wanted to fight for Evelyn to get down to the MRI to push different tests to really push the process along to get us the answers that we needed to to see how Evelyn was doing and so that was super special to have both the comfort side and also the fighter side yeah. from both of our dogs. I think she felt like they were there, they were helping, taking yeah. care of you, yeah. meeting your needs. Yeah. So at what at what point? I mean, did it become clear then? I mean, you're obviously holding out hope, I'm sure, and there was little yeah. little glimmers of hope maybe when she'd come out of a surgery and they say she's fighting, she's doing well, yeah. and you know I think you always hope for a miracle of in course. situations yeah. like that. Of but course. how? I mean, at what point do you know or decide like? This is it. I mean, yeah, we. The, so the night that they took her on the little field trip down to get an MRI, um, the fighter, the doctor that was the fighter said, "All right, she's healthy enough, or she's good enough to go down and get this MRI." And so she went on a field trip, and April and I went back to our own room. April had a room down the hall, and we were still trying to figure it out. We were always hopeful that a miracle could happen. That the test results would come back. She's producing urine. She's her platelets are up. She's starting to heal the the hurt that was from the lip from birth. And we were able to sing a little hymn in that room, and that gave us some hope that even if it didn't turn out the way we wanted to, it it would be all right. Um, right after that, maybe an hour and a half later, they brought her back and 
they said she did great downstairs. Um, that she was even healthy enough, or the prognosis was good enough that we could even hold her. And so that was the first time. Because you hadn't at that yeah. point. It had been four days. Yeah. It was. Had not even held your baby. Yeah. So we just be by her bedside, hold her head, hold her hand, hold her Man. her foot. And so it was super special. It was about 3 a.m. in the morning, so the NICU was pretty quiet, and everything it was, was quiet. And April got to hold her first, and it was something special just to hold her for that first time, and then they switched her over to me. Now, when I held her, I think this is a really important mm-hmm. part of her story. We had been praying for the miracle. You just in these situations, you kind of assume that you're going to be that lucky one that gets the miracle because you hear these miracle stories. And since things kept looking a little bit better, you know, we're like, okay, she's going to pull through. She's going to be okay. And I remember when I was holding her, I looked down at her and I just had this intense feeling that she wasn't ours anymore and that her time was short. And I think that's what I needed as her mother to know that it was okay to let her go, which we ended up choosing to do the next day um but i think that if i didn't have that feeling it would have been an impossible impossible thing to 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 decide was that i mean i'm sure it was a tough realization yeah Yeah. right i mean because what you want and what you feel you have to do at that point or it's almost conflicting maybe because with with the medical knowledge that we have now they could have kept her alive for a month two months you know and it just, Evelyn let us know. Yeah. She's like, all right, um, I'm headed back. You know. Yeah. So what, I just can't even imagine then the aftermath as well. I mean, you just went through such a traumatic experience and then you have to come home yeah. and you don't have that experience that you're expecting. <laughs> Did you, you probably even had things here we had ready every, for her maybe? ready. So much. <laughs> So when we got home, so we ended up letting her go the next day. Um, my mom, my sister, my dad, and then Paul's dad flew out um, to, to let her go. And we came home, and the first thing that me and my sister and my mom did was go into the baby's room and packed everything up so that I didn't have to You didn't have to anymore. deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine just not anymore, you know, poking the wound. Yeah, you buy things specifically for that baby you know, imagining what they're going to be like wearing that or, you know, and and to have to pack them all up and know that she's never going to be able to wear them or or use certain things. It's it's hard. Yeah. What do you do to pick yourself up at that point? I mean, how do you, how do you keep going? (laughs) You don't. (laughs) What did you do though? I mean, what what was each day like? What was the coming week like? I mean, because you probably had to see people as well. We were, we were still in the thick of it though, because Right after, you have to talk to a mortician. You have to talk. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You There's to, the. You have to talk about what you. Your baby's casket. Yeah, you have. Stone. You have to talk to the mortuary. You have to talk to the cemetery and figure out the accommodations. And so my dad was here. Um, he was able to kind of navigate us through that. Just we just said, let's keep it simple. And it's something that you never think of that you'll have to design your own daughters yeah. great headstone well, yeah i mean that's the thing anyone that's been through yeah. something like this that they always say you know one of the most unfair things would be yeah. to have to bury your own child yeah. your children are supposed to bury you right, right? Yeah. i just there one note i want to say so i pulled something from something you'd written on the blog april and i want to read this to you and let everyone hear this because i think it's really powerful you wrote a little note 
to Evelyn uh-huh. in the burial. And in this note, you said, You gave me the taste of motherhood, Evelyn. You will always be my first, my first child. I thought you were the one who needed me, but after meeting you, I knew it was I who needed you to complete me. You showed me that my sole reason for living on this earth is to be a mother. You made me a mother. For that, I am forever in your debt. I just, when I read that, I just thought, that if there's any good you could pull from that, that you got to at least feel that. And I'm sure that's something that so many people, have, as they've read that, has given them comfort. They've been through something similar. That even if you don't have her with you, she will always be your daughter. Right. And at least you got four days. I mean, I know that sounds like nothing, <laughs> but at least you got that. We, yeah. we got to meet her, and we got to get to know her in a very different sense than we thought. And, yeah, the greatest gift that she's given both of us is parenthood. We got this taste of being parents and we knew that even though she had passed away that we wanted more children yeah 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 one thing that as a hopeful father you think about all the things that you're going to teach your daughter i'm going to teach her to love the beach and go in the ocean and teach her to paint and to sing and um just like april said she taught us more in those four days than we could have taught her in a lifetime yeah which is a tough blessing, yeah. right? It's kind of the, bit, the literal bittersweet yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. right there from anything. So uh, then you, you finish that, and I can't imagine how you, again, keep going with what your life is and how you pick yourself up, but you guys knew you wanted more kids. That wasn't the end. It wasn't just the one. No. So how do you decide then? Is it because you lost it that makes it easier? Well, let's start trying again, or how did you decide what was next on the baby front? We knew we wanted to have more kids, and my OB um, said that we could start trying in a few months. Um, And so during those few months where we were waiting, we just tried to heal as much as we could and get back to somewhat of normal life. Um, You don't really ever get back to normal. You kind of learn a new normal Yeah. um, because of what, um, what you've been through with tragedies. And we ended up trying to conceive and got pregnant pretty quickly um, with with a boy. Um, and this pregnancy was a thousand times different than with Evelyn's. Different in what way? So, like I, from the sickness, like the physical symptoms, no, or I was very sick with this one as well. <laughs> That's kind of my my pregnancies, but. Um, by week six of the pregnancy, there were some major complications that happened. Where with oh. Evelyn, there were none until delivery. Um, so we were, we, um, my OB ended up sending us to a perinatologist, one of the best, um, because she didn't really understand what was going on and what to do. And so we were seeing this perinatologist every week or two. Um, and what ended up happening Every time we went there, he would do a scan, and then he'd bring one of his colleagues in, and then they'd leave the room and go talk, and then they'd come in and tell us what was happening. And every time it was, they're adding something new or changing the diagnosis, and it was just, it was crazy, confusing. Maybe (laughs) you've got so many doctors trying to tell you something. So what what the prognosis was is, so the little embryo um, implanted close to April's C-section scar. And oh, so, from the from, from Evelyn. The, from Evelyn, and so from Evelyn's um, surgery or uh, C-section, the little guy implanted close, and so the placenta started to grow through the scar, 
So in a, in a regular uterus, the placenta, there's a barrier between the placenta and the uterus. And so when the baby's born, it comes off and the mother's whole again. But James's placenta, he started to grow through April's uterus. And so it started to fuse. And so they didn't know about eight to, eight to nine weeks, the doctor said, we're at a crossroads here. Um, we think we can get you a healthy baby, but it's going to take April's uterus. It's going to take part of April that we wouldn't be able to have any other children. Yeah, they were hoping to get me to about 30 weeks and deliver and do a hysterectomy at, at delivery. Um, but just, they knew that early on. They yeah. did. And that, so this, that, that would probably be the end of you yeah. guys have, being able to have kids. 100%. Right. Even by like week eight, when we went started seeing the perinatologist, he's like, even if we terminate right now, which is a lot of times what they recommend, we don't. you might bleed out from the termination. We might have to do a hysterectomy then. So that's why they decided, because of what we had been through with Evelyn, let's give you a live child if we can, and then take the uterus. So he, just keep taking one hit after another because at that point, I mean, from when everything happened with Evelyn, you went from expecting to have one and then a few months later, right, is my timeline that you're pregnant and then already finding this out yeah. that this is going to be the end of, of being able to have your own kids. Yeah. Right. I mean, what did the first one influence that you're just thinking you're cursed at this point or something? I mean, oh. what was your thought? Yeah. How do you deal with, we just had one, like why again? I just kept thinking, like, we're not supposed to have children. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're just, yeah, we're cursed. We're doomed. It's not for us, I guess. But it's, it's hard because you want it. My maternal in- instinct I wanted children. I wanted to be a mother. Yeah. And you're feeling like this is what I've thought my whole life about what I wanted, and it's not happening for me. Yeah. How did, what was the difference? Because it sounded like you had said that after Evelyn, you were, you at least accepted and felt like the right spirit about the whole thing right yeah but what was different about James then so you've just gone through your second one is it harder to keep up it is yeah like with Evelyn we handled it pretty well I think for for what we went through we were hopeful for you know more children and and moving forward in life um and I remember just mentioning to Paul one day like we're taking this too easy like something bad's gonna happen like just kind of not really thinking it would and then everything that happened with James you know and, and yeah you just kind of think like man like why am I getting hit over and over and over again like, yeah I don't deserve this yeah I can't even imagine so the second one is it and you're watching her have to go through the physical parts of it I mean I know sometimes we as men take the we get the easier path in, right. in pregnancy from a physical right. standpoint right. we can admit that what are you watching her go through at this point and how do you try and help at that point I think mm, as as April's husband I just tried to keep her afloat I I kind of set my own grief or my own healing what it could be aside and I was just there to help April and to keep her afloat from the darkness that was around us you mm-hmm. know that it I was super hopeful with James. Um, we we weren't gonna lose this guy. You know? well, to, I mean, no to use your analogy from before, right? It yeah. was lightning on a beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got hit again. Right. Yeah. Like no one gets struck by lightning, and you guys now have it twice. Yeah. yeah. What I mean, do you, do you start? What do you do? You start? Who do you blame at this point? I blame God. <laughs> really? For a moment. For a moment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you have to blame someone. Yeah. And. 
he's just an easy target. Yeah. You know, it's like he's not that he did this to us, but he didn't stop it. And that was kind of where my heart was is you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a woman of faith and it was just kind of like, why are you allowing this to happen to us? We don't, what did we do to deserve this kind of pain? And, and what are we supposed to learn from this kind of pain? Like you can't learn anything good from this kind mm-hmm. of pain. Um, so that was really hard for me to understand. Um, that's bad stuff just happens to yeah. people. Yeah. Another thing I want to read then here that I pulled from your blog again, mm-hmm. this, this, um, really got me thinking as well. And I think it, it'll, it'll play into what the relationship between both of you. So you wrote after my hysterectomy, I felt that there was no reason to live. I felt that it would be better to have died in that surgery. So Paul could marry someone that could give him children because I failed. I failed twice. I couldn't give him living children. I couldn't carry children for him anymore. What was the point of being married to me when all you wanted was a family? And that's like a heavy amount to have going between you. Right. I, I just, I, again, I, I keep saying this. I can't imagine what that was like to go through. But you felt like, did you feel like Paul was even blaming you a little bit? Or like that, not blaming you, but did you yeah, feel like, I'm what sure. was the, the balance between the two of you at that point? So, yeah, um, just to kind of explain explain that a little bit with James, um, at 15 weeks, I ended up losing my water, and um, and that's why we ended up having to get an emergency hysterectomy mm-hmm. because there was no more fluid around the baby, and so they knew they had to try to save my uterus, um, and, and they ended up not being able to save it, so they had to do an emergency hysterectomy to save my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember after that surgery, I just kept thinking why would Paul want to be with me at this point because I know he wants children he wants a family just as much as I do and I can't give it to him and I can't give his own his own children obviously he keeps failing and it was it was really hard to know how to communicate with him I think at that point because I I shut myself off from him I shut myself off from everyone really because I was just I was so sad and so angry and so, so frustrated that I, I mean, I didn't feel like a woman anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't do the one thing that women can do anymore. It got taken from me. Yeah. It was hard. What was, what did you have going on in your head at that point? Um, I was definitely disheartened about our, continuing our family. Like yeah. I had, we've, we had Evelyn and that was a big strength throughout little James's life as well, that we knew that we would see her again and that we would continue to be a family. And so I really didn't think about in the moment what Paul needs. Yeah. What Paul needs a family. Paul needs biological children. It wasn't about that in the moment. It was about helping April come come back from this lowest of lows. Mm-hmm. That it was it was very hard because we grieved in very different ways. Um, she what grieved, do you what do you mean by that? She grieved more um, expressively and openly. I grieved uh, more internally, and I maybe I didn't grieve at certain points when I needed to because I was focused on April on and something else. Is she going to get out of bed this morning? Is how are are we going to get her to eat? today are Mm -hmm. we gonna go in on a car ride are we gonna go see somebody are we gonna get out of the house and 
it was very hard those first two, three weeks of just how are we going to bounce back from this? Or yeah. Where, what's our path now? You know? Which that's something in talking with you guys and preparing for this that grief itself is a very interesting topic. It's an interesting feeling because I don't think you ever prepare for grief. Grief is something that comes as a result of something you've been through. Um, but there's no right or wrong way to feel grief. And the differences I'm hearing from your first, from Evelyn to James, what you were feeling in a sense of grief was totally different. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I felt a lot more sadness with Evelyn. Very sad that she couldn't be with us, but um, hopeful. I was definitely hopeful with, after Evelyn. And then after James, it was for a while pure anger. Anger at God, anger at everyone that had kids and, you know, that could be successful. And um, and, and then, you know, you, you start going through the different um, emotions of grief um, from there. But anger was very prominent after James, which was yeah. very hard. You don't expect anger to take that much out of you. I mean, it just really yeah. just, it took over. Well, and don't you think, and maybe did you have people come up to you and we're constantly like, well, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to get through this. And at that point, I mean, anyone that's in the thick of the grieving process, it seems like people telling you, like, it's going to get better only makes it worse for whatever reason. At least when you're, like, when you're not ready to be done with it. Yeah. The, the one, like, advice I can give anyone who knows someone who's grieving is do not tell them. Please don't tell them to move forward in their grief. Tell them to move on that that they're, maybe they're stuck in sadness and just super depressed, don't tell them they need to move on to the next step, you know, in the 12-step program or whatever it is for grief. Um, grieving is, it's it's like a roller coaster that you're going on blindfold and backwards. You have no idea where the drops are and where the twists are. And if you try to foresee what emotion you're going to feel, you just become more disoriented. And it's just, it's good to just let those emotions have their time and be as accepting as you can of that emotion, whatever it is, whether you think you're, it's okay to feel it or not. And, and I think that helps you through the process of accepting what's happened to you and being able to move forward with that pain. Um, the only time that, that, that it is an issue is when self-harm is involved, of course. Yeah. And that's, I yeah. Think, when, when, when people would need to step to in. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think April taught me that, um, through, the grieving process of James that I was more hopeful about where we were going and she taught me that we have to step back and the most important thing that I can do now is not to tell her that it's gonna get better tell her that it's it's okay but just to be there and just to be by our side and that was one thing that people would come up to us after um, Evelyn and they would say oh it's alright you can have another one or yeah. after James oh it's alright you can adopt oh, yeah. and it's it's Those something moments. very hard that if you haven't gone through that process all you need to do is just say it's it's I'm here with you yeah. I'm here which, by your side which and that's something actually I feel like I have had the hardest time in marriage and parenthood as a man I don't know if you're the same way and maybe this is a species thing I don't know I feel like you want to naturally fix things when something's wrong I want to put it back together That's I was trying to fix April <laughs> yeah you're trying to fix it and my wife told me that sometimes she just likes to, to tell me about things and rather than me trying to fix them she just wants me to 
say, You're, I hear you yeah. and I yeah. understand that this makes you hurt or yeah. makes, you know, whatever makes you angry, whatever it is. And sometimes you just need to be heard, not to be fixed. Yeah. Uh, again, I've, I have struggled with that. I think that must be a male thing. Yeah. And that's one thing that April taught me is that we just need to step back. We don't need to fix it and move on. We just, we need to be in the moment and be with each other. At one point, I think I told him, I said, I just, when I'm crying and I'm suffering, I need you to just hold me and just let me cry and let me suffer and just be there. Yeah. Instead of fix it and say, let's get out. Let's yeah. make dinner. Let's yeah. go see somebody. Let's mm-hmm. call our family. Yeah. Because eventually the, the one thing that will heal everything is time. And, and maybe not heal, but to a sense of in time, like you will pick yourself back up. Yeah. And you will eventually, like you learn to put one foot in front of the other again. And that's at some point you guys had you did that because you started talking about other options, right? I mean, what do you at that point you've had the hysterectomy, so you can't have children of your own. But what, so what are the options you start considering at that point? So I had a partial hysterectomy, so I had my ovaries still. Okay. Um, and so our two options were adoption and surrogacy. Now surrogacy, if you go through an agency, costs a hundred thousand dollars. A hundred thousand dollars. Hundred twenty. Hundred. Yeah. I mean, and who doesn't have just a hundred thousand dollars laying around? And adoption through agencies is probably close to forty thousand dollars, and it's not. We didn't have that kind of money, and even adoption, because that's something I feel like most people throw around. Just oh, well, you can adopt. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if you want, you have a few kids of your own, oh, you can adopt afterwards. Adopt is hard. It's a process. And and some people don't get matched with a child for years. Um, And so we looked through all the avenues. We we met with some IVF doctors and talked about surrogacy and how that would go down. If we ended up having someone who wanted to be our surrogate, who was a friend or family, that wouldn't, we wouldn't have to go with an agency. Um, And we talked to um, adoption agencies and an adoption lawyer who does more kind of close private adoptions um, and we even talked to foster adopt because that way you kind of bypass that money part of adoption um, but with foster adopt is a whole nother thing because you might not adopt the yeah. child that you yeah, foster. You, your heart has to be in a very different point from where April's and ours was where yeah. we needed a child to help heal us mm. where you're, when you're foster adopting, you bring the child in and it's it's about healing the child, yeah. not yeah. about healing yourself because, yeah, it could be two years and then reunification could happen. And that's what it's foster adopt is all about, you know. So that was kind of out. And that, yeah. so that option, we explored, we explored it and it just wasn't the option for us. Yeah. It sounds like you went down. I mean, every avenue, oh, yeah. right? You explored it, anything and everything. Our family, yeah. And this is just a few few months after James. Yeah. We, three, four it months. It was like after. three or four months that we started looking into things. Yeah. Because you realized, like, you need that I need child to help. Yeah. If, if it's, it's almost like the piece of you that had been removed, like, it needed to be, it wasn't going to just heal around it. It right. was something to go in there. One of the, the biggest um, feelings that I had that I, talking to other women who have lost children, whether it's miscarriage or stillborn or infant loss, is you have this incredible. And so it, you can't describe how it feels, but you have this incredible ache in your arms and in your um, chest that, like, where a baby is supposed to be. You're supposed to be holding a baby, and you don't have a baby. And so you just have this intense pain all the time in your arms. And all I wanted was a baby to hold to help that pain. Yeah, so any, any new nieces or friends that had kids, it was hard, like, right after 
we got back from the hospital with James, we had um, our family over, and they had a new little baby, and it was it was super hard just to see, see that and to feel and and to be there with it. So any new baby that would come, April would rip the Band-Aid off and she would go see the family and would go hold the child. And I'm sure I mean, that's admirable though. I mean, you've faced it head on then rather than just hiding I from it. I knew I had to because what I realized is if I don't see the baby and disconnect that that baby isn't mine, which is such a weird thing to think about, like me holding a friend's baby or my niece or nephew that somehow I would think it's mine. But I had to disconnect and, and realize that this isn't my baby and it's okay for other people to have children and for me to enjoy those children. You know, and, and so I, I had to see them as fast as I could. Yeah. Or else it was just getting harder. Yeah. Because you see social media posts from oh, everywhere. Yeah. And it's just... We, it's in your face whether oh, you're yeah. out looking for it or not at this yeah. point. Any Anywhere that you look after loss, you're going to see things that will remind you. Like we started to watch television again. And each episode there would be some crazy hysterectomy on the wow, screen. Really? Or a mom that had a baby that died. And it was just like, so is this the, we, this is the uh, This is the new car <laughs> yeah. syndrome, right? Where you buy a new car or yeah. look at it and all of a sudden it's everywhere. Yes. Yeah. There's babies everywhere. Hysterectomies yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. At the grocery store. Oh, yeah. Or just a mom or a dad like walking on the beach with their little three-year-old. You know, little glimpses of what may have been or could have been. And now you're painfully aware of this. Yeah. <laughs> Hypersensitive to Stabbed it. Stabbed and already wounded hearts. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. So how, what, take us through then how you got to where you did okay. with the third baby then. So um, the day before Evelyn's one year um, birthday, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. my brother uh, Nate called me and um, we talked for a little bit and then he said the most wonderful sense I've ever heard anyone say. He said, Alicia, his wife, my sister-in-law, wants to carry your baby. Um, Alicia had just had a baby five months prior to that, my little nephew, and I have no idea what exactly made her want to do it, but she thought about it on her own without even talking to my brother at first and um, talked to her OB to make sure that she was a candidate and then brought my brother into the picture and of course, he was supportive. Um, and the second that she had mentioned she wanted to do it, I knew that she was the one. Really? We had a few other people who had mentioned they'd want to, and for various reasons, medical or age, they weren't able to, to do it for us. So um, it, it was like the perfect opportunity. And, and then we just jumped on it. We went to the IVF doctor, started the process of retrieving my eggs, turning them into embryos. Um, we ended up getting two embryos in that cycle, a boy and a girl. And um, then we implanted her, and everything went great mm-hmm. with the pregnancy. Um, for Alicia, I was definitely a different case. I was crazy. I was anxiety-ridden and fearful, of course. Um, well, now you, I mean, you literally and metaphorically have the scars right. from yes. the first <laughs> two yes. pregnancies. But I'm terrified. Before, so hold on. I want to stay one step back, though. Yes. She just unsolicited then. I mean, it wasn't like you were going around at this point being like, Will you be? Will you carry my baby? Will you carry yeah. my baby? I mean, that's probably a very awkward or difficult thing to ask anybody. I wasn't going to ask. I had someone had to come to you. Blog okay. That we, you were looking. Possibility mm-hmm. that we wanted to do surrogacy, and that's why a few people did come forward. Um, but yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't going to force anyone. But kind of like 
cornering them and saying, hey, you're yeah. not having kids. Yeah. Have my baby. You know, yeah. like, you do good. So, um, yeah, it was it was a complete shock that she... Yeah, I was willing to do that. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. And then the waiting began. Yes. Yeah. You know? Lots we, of waiting. There's a, it's a long process with different contracts, lawyers, doctors. Okay. And the separation of the different states in which we lived in. Because they're in Chicago. Where were they? They're, they're in, in Chicago? Chicago. Oh, okay. And so April and I flew out every other month just to help out or to see... Go for doctor's appointments yeah, and go for see the first ultrasound. Um, even though I think I think the distance helped us a little, or else April would be over at Alicia's house every single day. Yeah, probably. Hey, how can I help you? What do you need? Let's go get some. Oh, that's an interesting. Yeah. How are you feeling? Do you feel my baby? Is the baby okay? <laughs> can I feel the baby? Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, it was it was another bittersweet. Uh, yeah. Nine months or a year because uh-huh. it started. With the IVF treatment of, and there's no guarantee of that no. either, right? Because when you then you've Every got you, so you said you had the two embryos, two. and that's it. We implanted one. You implanted one, the but there's no guarantee that that takes, no. correct? No. Right. You have no idea. It's just like a regular pregnancy. Yeah. You hope that it it grows and healthily it and does everything. Take, is she gonna let us do it again? Like that was the other thing. Is we this might be your only shot? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, and at that point, I hope this isn't insensitive to me saying that, but like your luck had not been great. Right. Were you? I mean, were you being like we're we're doomed. Like it just. Oh, yeah. We still had to guard our hearts, you know, because you can't open it up, open the doors freely again, and get smashed. Set yourself up to be hurt again, yeah. right? I mean, open and that so, up. So, yeah, we still had to be guarded, but there was a super big door that had just opened, yeah. where many, many doors had been closed before. Yeah. At least there was somewhere for you to go at yeah. that point. Yeah. And so, how did the pregnancy go? So you were flying out there back and forth. Every so often. Yeah. Thank you, Southwest, by the way. Um, <laughs> Southwest, if Southwest. you'd like to start a sponsor this time. <laughs> companion Pass. Yeah, Companion Pass. Great. Um, and so we flew out there all the time, uh, as often as we could. Sometimes it was just me. Sometimes Paul was able to come if he didn't work. And it was great to be there with Alicia. Alicia has this calming, just easygoing personality and with my high anxiety that I was feeling the whole pregnancy and, and being fearful, just being around her calmly, just seeing her that she was okay and she wasn't feeling anything weird, um, her pregnancy was beautiful, it made me so much calmer and okay with the pregnancy. Um, but I mean, still guarded, but, um, but definitely a lot, a lot less anxiety as the pregnancy went on just from being around Alicia more yeah. and more. Yeah, yeah, we would we would have different milestones of saying, "All right, she's at 20, twelve, weeks. T- 12 yeah. weeks. She's at twenty-five yeah. weeks. Now we have a eighty-three yeah. percent chance of a healthy baby. Now she's twenty-nine weeks. Now we have an eighty-seven yeah. percent chance." Yeah, maybe of it was good you guys baby. were not in Chicago <laughs> with her. Cause. That would have been awful for her. And so just the <laughs> the big milestones would would give us a little bit. Yeah. We could hold on to the hope a little bit harder, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit stronger. Yeah, and there was no complications of this one throughout no. the whole time. No, the pregnancy was great. Everything um, everything looked great, and Alessia was awesome. So getting closer. Has that changed your relationship with her at all? Yeah, so... I, mean, I just feel like, I mean, it's and it's your sister-in-law. It's sister-in-law. This is my brother's wife. And this is, so this is your brother's wife, mm-hmm. okay. This is a brother that I'm very close to. He's like my... I'm like the younger sister he protects. It's kind of how I always see our relationship. Okay. Um, I feel like I'm pretty close to him out of my brothers. And I was never super close to Alicia um, in the sense where I'd like call her up and just talk to her. 
Um, it just never was like that. But um, after the pregnancy, I mean, even now, I just, I, I feel a lot closer to her because of what we've gone through. And um, and it's definitely changed the relationship in some in some good ways mm-hmm. where I, I just, I just, I'm so grateful for her and just I see her in such a different light now. From yeah. This this like selfless gift that she's given us. I mean, it just says something this, to to your character if yeah. you're willing to do this. Yeah, because well, that's like I mean that's the only that's the type of thing that in a family relationship you could only really I feel like have a family member offer to do something like that for you. Yeah. And and even then it's I mean that doesn't mean that everybody is going to have someone in their right. family. I would say almost most people would not have somebody that would be willing to do that because it is so taxing. Right. So I can only imagine the willingness to do that on her part. So then, but then you finally decide to go out there. Everything's ready and fine and healthy. You go to Chicago. Yeah. So the baby was, um, the due date was November 12th. And we were going to fly out there originally November 9th. But the week prior, I was super anxious again. It it kicked back in while I was working. And I came home one day and told Paul, I need to be out there. I need to be out there. I don't know why. I just need to be out there with Alicia. And we flew out there on the 3rd or 4th of November. Friday. Friday. And on Monday, Alessia went into labor. Oh, so she it came oh, early. Early. So you would have missed, I mean, you would have missed it probably. on the plane trying to get there in time, Jeez. which, I mean, I can't even imagine what my anxiety would be like yeah. that. But, so thankfully, we, we were out there and, and settled, and um, we were able to be there. I was in the delivery room with my brother, and Paul was across the hall in, in his own room, and... Alicia was amazing. She was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Just this beautiful example of womanhood. Now that was something then, all the way back to Evelyn. Paul, you said you and 12 other people heard Evelyn cry. Mm-hmm. April, you then hadn't heard your own baby cry yet. What was that like to then hear that this is your baby now? I mean, obviously a different way of carrying it yes. than, than what most people expect. So it's, but it's still your baby, and you hear her cry for the first time. It's very weird, one, to see someone else deliver your child and not be you. Um, but when they when they gave me Lillian and put her on me and she was crying, it was this intense relief that I felt that just flooded me. Just knowing that I had this baby alive in my arms and that she was okay. It didn't stop the worry. I mean, I was still terrified that she was going to die at any moment. But for that moment, she was she was healthy, she was okay, and she was here. And it was just, it was perfect. Yeah. Paul, you want to the same thing? I mean, what was that like for you then? When April brought her in, I'd been texting April like, What's so, going it's, on, so it's, it's progressing. Uh, is she here yet? How's the baby? And so there was like... A, she put you on, on silent like at a, that point. Well, because she's holding like, a baby. Yeah. And so there was like 15 minutes stretch and I knew something was happening. And they wheeled her in and she was here. And it's it's not something that it's like an epiphany that this is my daughter and all is well, you know. <laughs> it's definitely grown over the last three and a half months that you see her smile, you see her breathing, you see... Yeah. I think one of the things that hit me hard was when we were able to bring her back home to LA after two weeks and I was in the back cleaning up the suitcases and stuff and April's mom and her were giving her a bath in the kitchen and I just heard a little little cry in the kitchen and uh, that that's one thing that hit me 
hard that was it's good to hear a little yeah. baby in the house it's something super special that we we didn't get to have it with Evelyn but now things are moving forward yeah so this is so from Evelyn to now is how long what's the time two and a half years two and a half years I mean two and a half years from when you thought you were going to be bringing home your first baby to now you finally get to hear that the sound I bet you know to your point a baby's cry has never sounded so good right it's like this sweetness and and April something again in your own words that you this might have been during the pregnancy a little earlier on but you mentioned how it was through Lillian, and we—I guess I don't even know if we covered this. Is you had a girl yes, sorry. named her Lillian? We may have mentioned that, we may have not. But you mentioned through Lillian, it was because of Lillian you had found your happiness again. You'd been through some of these dark times, and now you've got this baby at home, and it felt like thing. Could you say you're whole again at that point, or definitely not whole? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'll ever be whole again. I think that um, the best way to explain it is that I have very wounded heart from what I've been through. Um, but you learn how to be okay with the wounds and how to move forward with the wounds and the pain. And uh, you kind of adapt. You adapt to being someone who's wounded, but it's okay to be happy. Yeah. That's something that you had said before too, that it's, it's just as a new reality. What you thought maybe the path you were going to be on, sometimes that just changes. It doesn't mean it's bad or different or it's or it's not good or bad necessarily but it's different and then you find yourself and then you're on this path and all you can do is make the most of it right and you never really plan for any of these things but i i appreciate you saying that too because i think that's something important to remember as i hear your story from an outsider's perspective that it doesn't like you never expect to know how you're going to react to these things and grief itself is is a totally uncontrollable beast and you don't know how each person's going to do it but I think it's important to let yourself feel those things and not try to piece it back together. I mean, it's you've got those wounds, but if anything, that makes part of who you are, right? I mean, it's a unique characteristic now that right. makes up Paul and April is that you've got these this thing to you now and in your past that nobody else has. Yeah. And while it maybe isn't fair or it was, it's not easy, I mean, you've at least probably grown from that and various different ways and that's why we're so open about sharing Evelyn and James their stories because it's a part of us it's our life and that's the only way we have now to share our children we don't have I mean we have Lillian but Mm -hmm. we can't you know give you Evelyn to hold and to play with we have to share her story about um, how she was here and um, I mean that's the reality of, of our children now in our family yeah what did you feel like were some of the main the, the differences? I mean, things that you learned after each one. It kind of feels like it's this roller coaster. One, two, and three here. How do you feel like each of those were were similar or different? Or um, with with Evelyn, it was something we had a little girl, and I was able to touch her and to feel of her mm-hmm. love, and so it was something tangible that I can still hold on to. Um, Right after she had passed away, one way that I had grieved um, was I took all of the pictures from all of our phones and even the text chains that was from April's family and my family because it told the story perfectly and I put it into a book. And so it was one way to kind of process the logistics of what happened, but then also the heartfelt family texts and the pictures. And that's something that I love to share with people. Um, 
So instead of saying, let me show you pictures of my kid right now, yeah. and you want to come over and see her, it's I'm always open to sharing Evelyn with people and saying, yeah, this is my daughter. You do have this. With James, it was something unknown, that it wasn't tangible, because I didn't have uh, surgery that took part of my womanhood or my ability to have children. And so it was something intangible that I had to feel through April and to lean on her for the grief and lean on her for the healing and what we were doing. And now with Lillian, it's come full circle on our family and continuing our family here. Um, yeah. And something, I don't know, it's hard to put into words of how I feel about Lillian, but she's here and every time people ask how she's doing I say she's good she's, yeah. she's doing good yeah. and that's we're doing good yeah as long as she's alive she's good she's, she's <laughs> keep on living let's keep on living how do you feel like you've changed through all of this better or worse I mean there's no what's different I think now it's definitely better I think that I can see that I've grown in such an, an interesting way um with parenthood especially, I have a lot more patience with Lillian than I think I would with children in general if I didn't go through what I had gone through. Um, those late nights, those hard days where they're fussy and you just feel you know, just kind of helpless, you don't know how to help them. Instead of getting super angry and frustrated, I, I just I have more patience and I'm, I'm a lot more calm with Lillian than I think I would have been. Um, had I not lost two children because I just I don't take it for granted I have this child and I love her so much and all I want to do is just help her and help her along in, in her life you know in yeah. her journey here so that's amazing because that's I mean I feel like that's as a parent especially you know for both of us all three of us I should say now really being first time parents as they grow mm -hmm. that you do have those moments where they are they are fussy and they do cry and they do puke all over everything and you have to constantly do laundry and all this stuff that just changes what life was but i the perspective is something that i feel like hearing you say that is something i will always keep with me now in the sense of the alternative would be well you could have all those little challenges happen or you could just not have them at all and that alternative is just not something you ever want to go through right. so you learn to enjoy the challenging parts because the Otherwise, you wouldn't get to have them at all. And I would give up anything to be able to, to keep that and to have these moments with me, no matter how much it is at 3 in the morning or whenever that I feel like I just need sleep or, or something, that if you could learn to enjoy the little moments, if that's you know a way to say it, I think that's something um, to keep in perspective for sure as you go through this. Yeah. The hard times never last with kids. You know, they're fussy for a little bit and then they're fine. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's a little bit, Paul, the, the book you made, too. And some of the stuff you, you guys had gone through and written down um, from Evelyn, you were showing me before, that you guys yeah. had wrote down a lot of the little things that right you after, took out of it. Right after she passed away, my mom gave us a book, and just like a little notebook. And she's like, you guys should write down all the little miracles and blessings that you saw throughout Evelyn's life. And so there's big things in there, like we had great doctors that stepped us through the process. We were able to be with her for four days, but also little things like there was 
an awesome chocolate pudding at the hospital that April's dad would always get us and we would look forward to it or the little and that, there's not too much can be said about the chocolate, chocolate pudding, pudding right? so good. <laughs> and so have you gone back do you go back and get this chocolate pudding we actually ever? have one in our fridge right now <laughs> really we were at UCLA yesterday, yesterday or two days ago to visit the social worker we and wanted them to meet Lillian one of the doctors oh, that's awesome. that, yeah. and so it was super cool to have Lillian meet Evelyn's doctor and social workers so so we got we got a chocolate pudding (laughs) (laughs) it's the little things and so yeah that was that was one thing that like april said we were more hopeful with evelyn and just to keep in perspective of we were guided through this time and i think that's one takeaway that i've had from this experience is it's it's going to be ups and downs just like a roller coaster and if you keep looking forward for hope, it'll it'll come. And the lowest of lows that we've had with James and Evelyn, now we have the highest of highs with Lillian and mm-hmm. Finn. So it seems like a lot of this then, what I'm starting to pull out of is, is a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. Where you're coming from, where you've been, you know, no one can really be in your shoes. And you'll go through uh, different things along the way. There's another thing I want to that I feel like is is summing this up really nicely, April. I'm gonna get one more quote here because it's just so good. So again, I'll, I will I will plug this again at the end for the blog. But it's it's it really was an incredible experience to go through and reread a lot of this. But she said, if anything good can come from death, I think the best part is that our priorities shift. Work and money gain no longer mean as much. Relationships take on a whole new depth. We stop and smell the roses in our lives. Even the simplest sunset can give you comfort and a sense of immense peace. It, it to me, it, it does. It it changes you, and and I don't know. I'm even me having talked to you guys through this. I feel like I'm still forming my opinion and the and the viewpoint of what this podcast is going to be about. We're in episode two here, and a lot of this, you know, it's I do think that you can find good in everything you go through it, but I don't think that that means that every situation has a direct result of good. Losing your baby or death or anything like that. It's not like something necessarily directly will come out of that that is good. But you never know what you will gain from that, what other people will gain from that, sharing your story. Um, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I'm still, I still am trying to figure out how I feel about all of it and what that really means, you know, because you would never want to go through that. It's not like, it's almost like if you go through, you know, use the analogy of the refiner's fire, right? And you think, you're in this fire and you're supposed to come out and you're supposed to be this shiny object and I went through it and now I'm a better person. But maybe sometimes I wonder if it's not you go through the fire, you're in the fire, and when you come out the other side, what you've learned is stay away from fire because it burns you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, But that can be a positive thing still. Yeah. It might not always be that now I'm the stronger person or whatever. I mean, I would hope. But each person is different. Each situation is different. But you can learn something from everything. And whether you choose for these things to happen or not, once they've happened, the only thing you can do is decide, what am I going to do from here? And it's about taking that first step and then the next step and figuring it out. But there's no game plan, I don't think, that that you can plan, I'm going to be okay after this much time or anything. Just have to get through the day. I think when you're in the thick of it, if it's a really rough day and you're really down and you just don't see any escape, then you just... Pray for that day to end fast because tomorrow might be better. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. So what do you, and we've talked about a lot of these things now, but if you had to start summarizing or pull out one thing that if you, someone were going to ask you, okay, so through all of this, through the last two and a half, three, four years, what is the thing you have learned more than anything else? Let's say someone was going to, for some reason, going to go through some of these exact same situations and you could be there to hold their hand through it. Hopefully no one else will have to and you guys will be the only ones. But what would be the one thing? And maybe each of you, or if you both have one, what's the silver lining, if you will, in that? So I was reading through my blog the past few days um, just to kind of get myself re, re acquainted with the intense emotions I was feeling at the time as things were going on. And throughout my blog, the reoccurring theme was hope. Now, sometimes in those blog posts, it was hopeless, hmm. and I would feel extremely hopeless, but more often than not, you would see uh, a glimmer of hope that uh, that um, I, would, I would feel or um, would try to have um, at that instance. And I think sometimes it's just a hope that tomorrow will be a better day, um, but hope is something that you just have to to find in whatever you can. Hope that something good will happen, um, and eventually that hope will will turn into happiness. You know, you continue on in your life with your grief and your pain, and eventually you find happiness in something. And I really believe that. I, I think that a lot of times you get so stuck in the pain that you just don't think that happiness can happen can happen to you again that you won't ever feel joy again but as if you continue to have hope i think i think it finds you yeah absolutely yeah. paul i think looking back um there was a moment that april and i and lillian went to evelyn's grave which is just 10 minutes down the road and we were sitting there just thinking about evelyn thinking about james and holding lillian in our arms and how do those three things mix at the same time, you know? And we came to a conclusion that we wouldn't have Lillian in this way if it wasn't for Evelyn and James. And so they paved the way for something that was better. Even though the paving was super hard and super trying, if you just stick with it, um, the highs will come and just hold on to those highs because life happens and it'll go down again but just know that it'll always go back up yeah that's so awesome and i think and through all this too and i've i've gained a new perspective from your guys' story too because and for me the one thing is is dealing with grief that there's no right or wrong way to feel when you go through whatever it is you go through in life that even if someone has been through the exact same thing you might grieve totally different but it's okay, and it's okay to feel, and it's okay to not be rushed and to try and fit that into a, any sort of shape or form or something like that. Take the time you need and, and feel. Don't let anyone try and fix you or change you um, and do that. Now to the point of not letting it dehabilitate you or right. do anything to yourself, but you know what I mean? Like there's no right or wrong way to, to deal with that. And I think that's what is so awesome and why I'm glad both of you really have been so open about this that I think a lot of things you shared other people might not put that out there. They definitely wouldn't blog about it and say, this is what I was feeling in my darkest moment. I mean, you exposed a different side of yourself that maybe people didn't even know was there. And I think that is, it actually probably helped you find that hope you were talking about, getting everything out there. Maybe, I don't know if you'd realize, but maybe you were searching for that at the time when you were just 
wandering in the dark, right. looking for something to grasp onto. And eventually I think you found it. And now it's, it's so awesome that you guys have Lillian here in your home, you know, that you get to hear her cry and things like that. Um, I'll plug that again for if anyone that has not already read the story of this and it goes through Evelyn, it goes through James. Some of it she kind of even did, like she wrote about during it and then put it back on there. So you got more detail, which is really cool. Um, it's findingtendermercies.wordpress.com. Um, you can read a lot about this and we're going to put stuff on. So our social media channels, some pictures of these guys, some memories and things like that, that they've been through. So you get to know that. Um, but I'm, I'm so happy you guys were willing to come do this. This took a lot of courage and it was very brave of you to do that and share that. And I hope a lot of people that maybe some people knew this story, some people that knew you maybe didn't know the details. I think everyone will be uplifted by this and um, hopefully find some good from this and do that. So thanks, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having us on. This. Absolutely. Our thanks go out to Paul and April one more time for coming on the show and sharing their remarkable story with us. My hope is that we can all gain a new perspective from hearing this and always remember what's really important in life. And thanks to each and every one of you, our listeners, for supporting us through these first few episodes. If you like the podcast so far, we'd love your help. Please share it with your friends and family on social media. You can rate us on iTunes, leave us a review, all of which will help more people discover it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Silver Linings Podcast. You'll find some of the pictures of Paul and April up there right now, and we'll share more info about upcoming shows and guests as we move forward. And again, we're still looking for more people. So if you know anyone that you think would make a great guest for the show, you can go to our website at silverliningspod.com and share that name with us. That's all for now. So thanks and talk soon.